Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. We are continuing our in-depth coverage on the UN Conference on the Environment known as COP27 that just wrapped up on November 20th, Sunday in the evening after two weeks of contentious negotiations by governments with NGOs and activists putting on whatever pressure they could. The biggest breakthrough that has been reported is governments, including the United States, agreeing to set up loss and damage funds. It's after 30 years of this discussion happening and a lot of resistance from the United States and some other Western countries. Left out, though, of this document, there's no call for a phase out of fossil fuels. And that has, as you could well imagine, upset quite a lot of people. And uh, as you know, this COP took place in Egypt and there was a lot of controversy around that in Shar El Sheikh. And some of the activists complained about the limited access they had to making their voices heard. Our guests will be Shireen Talat, co-director and one of the founders of the Arab Watch Regional Coalition for Just Development. Since 2013, Shireen has worked on monitoring and following international financial institutions, including the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, to hold them accountable and to work towards social, economic, and climate and gender justice. Our other guest is Luis Vieira, who coordinates the Bretton Woods Project. And he's done quite a lot of work internationally in many different parts of the world, including El Salvador, Kosovo, Macedonia. He has served as a guest lecturer on conflict and development at the Columbia University School of International Public Affairs. And I'll say more about him a little later. And our guest, who has been with us since COP27 started, we'd like to welcome back Tina Gerthardt, who is an environmental journalist who covers international climate negotiations, domestic energy policy, and sea level rise. And she has been covering COP27 for The Nation magazine. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. Seven people are dead from a mass shooting at a Walmart store in Virginia last night. A witness says a Walmart manager opened fire on fellow employees gathered in the break room of the store, killing six colleagues and wounding others before taking his own life. Four remain hospitalized. Here's Chesapeake Police Chief Mark Soleski. While our investigation continues, we can tell you the following. Six victims have died. Four victims are in area hospitals with conditions unknown at this time. And the suspect is dead from what we believe was a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Soleski confirmed the suspected shooter is a Walmart employee. There's no clear motive for the shooting. According to the Gun Violence Archive, it's the 606th mass shooting this year. The 36th 
gun mass murder. New details are emerging about the suspect in the Colorado Springs LGBTQ nightclub shooting that killed five and wounded 19 others Saturday. Authorities have not formally charged the 22-year-old Anderson Lee Aldrich, who faces preliminary charges of five counts of first-degree murder and five counts of bias-motivated crime. Authorities said Aldrich had been transferred to the custody of the El Paso County Sheriff's Office at the jail. He's scheduled to appear in court today. Aldrich's attorney has said in his defense he is non-binary. He will be held without bond. The Biden administration is making a new push to get people vaccinated as COVID-19 infections are rising, along with fears of a bad flu year, coupled with RSV infections that are already straining hospitals. Christopher Martinez reports. This holiday season is expected to be another difficult one, with COVID-19 cases making a winter surge. Dr. Ashish Jha is the White House COVID coordinator. If folks get their updated vaccines and they get treated if they have a breakthrough infection, we can prevent essentially every COVID death in America. That is a remarkable fact two and a half years after we found this virus first in our country. Along with COVID, there are also fears of a bad year for influenza, in part because fewer people developed immunity to flu as they took precautions against COVID. So please, don't wait. Get your COVID shot. Get your flu shot. That's why God gave you two arms. Get one in each arm if you want. Joss says the Biden administration is launching what he calls a six-week sprint to help people get their updated vaccinations before the end of the year. That effort will include $350 million for community health clinics and $125 million for aging and disability networks. Reporting for Pacifica Radio News KPFA, I'm Christopher Martinez. The United Nations Human Rights Chief is calling on Iran to put a moratorium on its death penalty after authorities killed two children protesters. Jeremy Lawrence is a UN Human Rights spokesperson. It's the rising number of deaths from protests in Iran, including those of two children at the weekend, and the hardening of the response by security forces underline the critical situation in the country. Our office also calls on the Iranian authorities to immediately impose a moratorium on the death penalty and to revoke death sentences issued for crimes not qualifying as the most serious crimes under international law. Protests in the wake of Masa Amini's death while in custody of Iran's morality police for not wearing her headscarf properly have spread to general anti-government protests against the country's strict theocratic rule. Two bomb blasts in Israel killed one and injured 18 others. Sally Patterson reports. A teenage boy has been killed and several other people wounded in explosions at a bus stop in Jerusalem. Israeli police say the blasts were a suspected Palestinian bomb attack. The explosions happened at two busy areas on the outskirts of the city. This is the latest in a spate of deadly attacks that have killed 19 Israelis. More than 130 Palestinians have been killed in fighting in the West Bank and East Jerusalem this year. Sally Patterson reporting. The violence comes as Israeli-Palestinian tensions are high amid Israeli raids in the occupied West Bank. The rights group B'Tselem from Israel says the military has demolished a school in the occupied West Bank, part of a long-standing expulsion order against eight Palestinian hamlets. The rights group says Israel has been carrying out a gradual demolition of structures in the area since the ruling in May that paved the way for the displacement of at least one 
9,000 Palestinian families. In the U.S., President Joe Biden announced his administration will extend its federal student loan repayment pause. The reprieve will be in place while the White House fights a legal battle to save Biden's plan to cancel up to $20,000 in student debt. All this means people can start, finally crawl out from under that mountain of debt to get on top of their rent and their utilities, to finally think about buying a home or starting a family or starting a business. The moratorium was slated to expire January 1st. The program will now extend 60 days after the lawsuit is resolved. If the lawsuit has not been resolved by June 30th, payments would resume 60 days after that. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. And those were our news headlines. So we're going to get right to it. The climate, as we all know, has been in crisis. We on Sojourner Truth, we have been covering these issues with our weekly Earth Watch and our weekly Earth Minute going back to 2009. Since then, things have continued to deteriorate climate-wise. And we're going to be digging a bit deep now because in this whole issue of the loss and damage fund, but also the impact of international monetary institutions like the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and others. As you heard in the intro, the what are considered rich countries, the United States and some Western European countries agreed to establish a loss and damage fund at the close of the two-week-long UN Climate Summit, which, as you know, is called COP27 that was held in Egypt. And part of the focus a lot of people had hoped would be to help the global South deal with the worst effects of the climate catastrophe. And then there were a number of things that were also left out. But we are going to start our discussion of focusing on a letter that was sent on behalf of 300 civil society organizations around the world regarding a new letter sent to the IMF directors. And we're going to be learning all of what that was about. And for this part of our program, I'd like to welcome two guests. Let's start. I'd like to welcome Shireen Talat, co-director and one of the founders of the Arab Watch Regional Coalition for Just Development and responsible for the Middle East and North Africa region for the coalition. Since 2013, Shireen has worked on monitoring and following international financial institutions, including the IMF, to hold them accountable and to work towards social, economic, and climate and gender justice. She has a master's degree in environmental media and education from the Ain Sham. Shireen, you could correct that pronunciation, University in Egypt. Uh, okay. Shireen, welcome. Thank yeah, you for joining thank us. Thank you for the introduction. Okay. I'd also like to welcome Luis Vieira, who coordinates the Britain Woods Project. And he has served as the chief of mission for the International Organization of uh, Migration, where he worked with UN bodies, donors on strategic development planning. His 
past experience has taken him with the NGO Mercy Corps in a variety of emergency response situations, including in El Salvador, Kosovo, Macedonia, as well as on democratic governance in Angola. He served as a guest lecturer on conflict and development at the Columbia University of International Public Affairs, and he holds an LLM in international law and a master's in development economics from the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. He also has a degree in political science from the State University of New York at Albany. Uh, Luis, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very nice to be here. Thanks. Okay. Well, we have to start by setting the stage a little bit by telling our listeners and Luis, let's start with you. Bretton Woods, I'm sure, rings a bell for some of our some of our listeners. Establish what was it that the Bretton Woods, where the IMF, World Bank, etc. Forty four years ago, I think forty four countries at that time. The world has greatly changed back then. Um, Luis, to avoid confusion, tell us what is the Bretton Woods Project. So thank you very much. Yes, as the name implies, we. Um, we're based in London, first of all, to tell you that, and we're part of a global network, which includes the Arab Watch Coalition, of which Shireen is the co-director, of course. And we, uh, our mission is really to help people impacted by the negative impacts of the IMF and uh, World Bank, International Monetary Fund and World Bank programs, to hold those institutions accountable. So we work together to critique their work and to try to bring about changes in their policies and programs in search of just development and positive outcomes for for all. Right. So that's very good. So you are not, um, your project is not just to promote the IMF and World Bank and these international monetary institutions, but to hold them accountable. Thank you uh, for that. Uh, Shireen, just tell us then about um, the press release you all issued on behalf of 300 civil society organizations. What does it say? What, what's your main points there? And what impact are you hoping it would have? This is not the first uh, uh, statement that we sent to the IMF. We sent uh, specifically on ending surcharge or eliminating surcharge. We sent the global network that the Louise was mentioning came together on a campaign started last April and before actually and sent a letter to the IMF urging them to eliminate the unfair charges, uh, sewer charges. And this specific letter came after an attempt from the UN, a letter from the UN from nine special rapporteurs to ask the IMF uh, about the human rights impacts that surcharges cause to countries uh, uh, of operation or countries that base surcharges. The letter was sent uh, around three months ago, but with no response from the IMF board of directors or MD Kristalina Gregeva. The letter specifically asked them to reply to the to the letter and to take an action towards people and planet to eliminate uh, this unnecessary, unfair surcharge, specifically putting in mind the situation that the world is facing now under the multiple crisis, and also those the countries that are uh, ha- that has to pay surcharges 
are most of them are vulnerable in a very economical burden uh, situation on debt burden and facing uh, of course Uh, climate and food crisis. Right. Thank you for that, Shireen. And, and Louise, for our audience, help them, you know, to understand this business about surcharge. I mean, the, the average person, when you think of these kinds of, uh, you know, global policies, you're not quite getting what it's all about. What is this surcharge, right? And why are you pushing for it to be dropped? Thanks. I'll try to explain um, in, uh, briefly. So as, as um, people may know, the International Monetary Fund provides emergency support for countries that have debt, um, issues paying their debt, their sovereign debt. And they provide uh, loans and in some, ta- in some, some cases uh, in concessional loans, sometimes in um, a bit more expensive loans to countries that are in need of emergency support. And the, the system is set up in such a way that countries have access to these funds through the IMF and to and that the access of funds that to which they have access is linked to this thing is a, it's a quota formula. Each country is provided a quota within the IMF, which helps to resource institution and the, the IMF um, in the 90s decided that in order to induce their rationale for this is in order to induce countries not to become over-reliant on, on IMF financing and, and, and uh, loans in order to ensure prompt repayment. In addition to the charges that the IMF normally charges on their loans, they decided to penalize basically countries that uh, borrow above their what's called their quota share. So the amount to which they normally have access or to a certain degree, or they have ex- uh, extended their periods of the loans. So in fact, what happens is that this massively increases the cost of those loans to countries that must, uh, just to recall that those countries come to the IMF for support precisely because they're in crisis. You know, As, as many of your listeners may know, the IMF, when it lends countries uh, money, and this is true of the World Bank as well, they don't do so without preconditions. They have quite a few conditions that must be adhered to when uh, countries borrow money from the IMF, and those are tend to be quite unpopular. For example, fiscal consolidation or what we normally call you know, um, austerity, privatization, cutting uh, civil service expenditures, et cetera. So countries don't go to the IMF um, on a whim. You know, They just do it as a last resort. So hopefully this gives you an idea that These are the, these are additional charges that the IMF charges on countries that that require their help in order they argue to ensure that they don't um, borrow excessively nor for long periods of time. And they, the IMF also, I'll just add, they justify this policy by saying that this source of income helps, you know, the uh, the fund resource itself. And as uh, I'm sure Shireen and I can explain. Every single argument for the legitimacy and utility of the surcharges have been very roundly rebutted by studies, by the, the uh, study that you mentioned, the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington and others, who argue that, if, if you allow me, I'll just provide a brief um, rationale for, for the letter. The, okay. the, 
the surcharge policy is actually counterproductive, right? What the IMF, its very mission is to help countries deal with their debt distress. You know, as studies show, by, by taking hard currency away from these countries who are in distress to pay the IMF, you can actually exacerbate the very crisis in which they find themselves. So it's counterproductive in its own right, you know, by, by the IMF's own um, parameters. Then it's, it's, it's very unjust, right? Because you're already, you're forcing countries to, in debt distress, and they're probably already having to rationalize, fiscally consolidate. So money that could be used, for example, for health expenditure in the aftermath of COVID or to fight, you know, to as climate finance, for example, after you mentioned COP, of course, and we mentioned this in our letter, it's ridiculous to us that in a situation when the world recognizes that there's a dire need for climate finance, that countries are being forced to pay additional charges to the IMF instead of, you know, and basically withdrawing money from their resource base that could be used to finance both COVID recovery, but also climate action. Finally, the the um, the independent experts, the UN independent experts on debt and, and human rights, have noted that this policy also violates international human rights law. So it's counterproductive. It's unnecessary because the the fund doesn't not need those resources to fund its operations, which are funded out of quota and other political arrangements, bilateral arrangements. So it's really the the ethos of the letter is that you know the. The managing director at COP of the IMF, Kristalina Georgieva, said that you know she called upon states to do the right thing. We have many disagreements with the IMF and the World Bank and their policies, and we argue in our letter that this is a step that they can take immediately that would make a, a significant difference. We project that surcharges could amount to something eight billion dollars between uh, to uh, between this year and 2028. So we're talking about significant. Yeah amounts of money. Thank you very much. I hope that's useful. Yeah, that that is. And and that voice you just heard with that explanation is Luis Vieira, who coordinates the Bretton Woods Project. And they, of course, they try to hold institutions uh, like the IMF uh, to account. Now, Shireen Talat, our other guest, just back to you for a moment, because in the press release, it talks about discussions at uh, COP27, emphasizing the dire need for climate finance to be made immediately available. It does seem to me from what I have learned about the demands of countries coming uh, from the global South, including my home island, by the way, I'm from Barbados in in the Caribbean, and and my island is certainly uh, very vulnerable uh, to climate change. Uh, they are calling, it seems to me, for much more, going a bit further than what you are calling for with the, with the surcharge. So why, why do you think that that is important? Um, and do you think that it, you know, what, what you're calling for with the surcharge is a step in part to what the the countries or what's called the vulnerable 20 group, the countries most vulnerable to to climate change are pressing for. Uh, Shireen? Actually, we cannot say that there would be any climate justice with this kind of policies still operating in our countries. I'm based in Morocco, but I'm Egyptian. And Egypt pay a huge amount of surcharges. 
Egypt, Tunisia, Jordan, at least those three countries from the MENA region, Morocco uh, will join very soon after the new agreement. So it's it, it's not fair and it's not reasonable. We as, and, and, I, and I'm quoting the the uh, the managing director, Kristalina Gurgeva, during the annual meeting, she said that the we were speaking about the food crisis and she said that the food crisis is actually a solvable issue which is okay solvable how how can it can can a food crisis be solvable uh, while uh, uh, the country that i'm living in now will face hunger in two years and you are asking us to pay surcharges and i, I believe that surcharges is I, I don't, it's not my belief it's the fact surcharges are a way of draining us from our vital resources, the resources that we need to fight and to stand uh, uh, against the crisis. Uh, but keeping being surcharges is is uh, basically against any kind of justice, including climate justice. So, um, and and it's very related to if we are speaking about. Uh, 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 more, finan- more finance in climate uh, justice, more finance to end uh, supporting fossil fuels. We cannot, as countries uh, uh, that base this amount of uh, money, we cannot uh, uh, hold our uh, uh, economically stable or even, even if we're speaking about debt, it is against sustainability of debt, and to be able to fight the climate uh, change crisis uh, if we are keeping paying this uh, huge amount of money that can can actually surcharges can can go beyond 100 1.8% from the uh, uh, from the debt right and so you are are hoping that eliminating this surcharge would basically free up funds for vulnerable uh, countries, countries who are dealing with with climate change, to use uh, those funds for other other means, whether it's um, I firmly believe there's a connection between poverty, for example, and what happens um, with the climate in places like Haiti, where people are, you know, stripping trees or cutting trees, you know, to get fuel and, and that sort of thing. But uh, to to use to help those nations to alleviate in part um, the climate crisis. Um, just uh, We're just about out of time uh, for this segment, but uh, Louise, a, a final thought from you and any, any reaction also in terms of what came out of COP27, please. Uh, just quickly then, um, yeah, I think the, the, the very obvious thing to us, I suppose, is that the surcharge policy, which I, as I, I would stress is unnecessary, counterproductive, violates international law. Out of COP, when when the, as Shireen said, when the managing director of the International Monetary Fund called upon states to do the right thing and provide funding for climate finance, you know, the IMF has uh, developed, established this new resilient sustainability trust to, to, you know, quote unquote, support countries with their climate action and finance. How can the organization, on one hand, do these things, call upon the, the global community to provide additional resources, while on the other hand, they penalize countries who, which need those monies 
to react to the climate crisis that everyone recognizes. And, and additionally, I mean, I stress that these funds are necessary for, for, for the fund. So, you know, obviously, uh, I'll just say one last thing is that, you know, we're very focused on this surcharge policy, but just to make clear that that's not the only area in which I, we think uh, the IMF and the World Bank, among others, uh, need to be held to accountable to account. I think their policies in a variety of ways impact countries negatively, countries' ability to deal and respond to climate action. I'm sure, I am hope that uh, after our, our um, contribution, Tina would maybe speak to that as well, because there's much more to be said about the, the interaction between the World Bank, the IMF, the international financial architecture and climate um, change and, you know, the poverty, uh, the injustices of the economic system in which we live. Right. Thank you. Thank you for that. And Shireen, uh, Talat, for people who want to follow your work or be in touch with the Arab Watch Regional Coalition, what should they do? Is there a website or, or some way they can go to get more information, Shireen? Of course, we are we are visible on social media, so uh, you will find us uh, uh, on Twitter, also on Facebook. There is our website, also arabachcoalition.org. You will find us on Twitter uh, under uh, AWC MENA uh, or Facebook AWC MENA. And you can follow the campaign on eliminating surcharge that uh, Arab Watch, uh, uh, Britain Woods, CPR and others are uh, very active on under the hashtag stop IMF surcharge. All righty. Thank you for that, Shireen. And Luis, any in terms of the Bretton Woods project, is there a website or a place people can go to follow your work to get there more information a, on the project? Our website is very original. It's uh, brettonwoodsproject.org. So if you do it. Easy to remember. Exactly. <laughs> we're, we're not particularly creative, apparently. But we're also on uh, on the, your usual social media um, channels. So right. uh, thank you very much well, once again for inviting us, for giving us opportunity yeah. to, to speak with you. Sure enough. And I want to thank the Center for Economic and Policy Research for putting us in touch with you both, uh, Shireen Talat and uh, Luis Vieira. Luis Vieira, we'll, we'll have you back because these are really important um, issues, uh, all very, very much connected to what's happening now with, with climate. These are not simply just financial uh, considerations that's separate from uh, the climate crisis. Thank both of you for joining us. All righty. Okay, we are going to take a, a very short uh, station break and then coming up, our weekly Earth Minute, and then we go um, to Tina Gerhardt, environmental journalist who's been covering COP27 for The Nation magazine. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Sojourner Truth. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. And we also want to welcome all of the Sojourner Truth listeners who are listening to us via the Pacifica Radio archives, all of the affiliate stations and flagship stations that cover Sojourner Truth. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us uh, there. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. And we're also heard nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Jackson, Mississippi, that continue uh, to face a water crisis there. Uh, Internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Egypt. I think we do have some in Egypt, in Egypt. And as I said, this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And we've been doing a series covering the UN conference on the environment and of course the environment itself, the, the, the climate crisis. So we're going to continue that. Uh, but first, our weekly Earth Minute. This November, the 27th annual United Nations Climate Conference is taking place in Egypt. We interviewed award-winning activist and Global Justice Ecology Project board member Nemo Bassi about his expectation for this year's Conference of Parties. In fact, the Conference of Parties is not nothing much more than a carbon stock exchange. Nations go there to debate and find ways to avoid climate action completely opposite to what it ought to be. This is why today nations are so happy to sign up to, they, they, they happily sign up to the Paris Agreement, knowing that the major element in that agreement is a nationally determined contribution, which is a voluntary mechanism, that which whatever any country feels they can do, they, oh, they could do it. Whatever they feel they would not do, they don't have to do it. There's nothing mandatory about it. They only have to report that this is what we're doing. This is what we're going to do. Uh, And so far, we've seen that if nations do what they say they're going to do, we're on a trajectory for major, major catastrophe because they're not cutting emissions at any level that shows any kind of understanding of the emergency or a sense of what needs to be done. For the Earth Minute and the Sojourner Truth Show, this is Steve Taylor for Global Justice Ecology Project. And that was our weekly Earth Minute. I would now like to welcome, uh, who will stay with us um, till the top of the hour, Tina Gerhardt, environmental journalist who covers international climate negotiations, domestic energy policy, and sea level rise. Her work has been published by the American Prospect, by Gris, the per- Progressive, The Nation, Sierra, and The Washington Monthly. Tina is the author of the forthcoming book, Seabank, an Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean, which discusses the impacts of sea level rise on islands around the world. And it's going to be coming out with, um, it's out with the University of California Press in May of 2023. Tina, thank you for joining us. It's so great to be back with you, Margaret. Yeah, and Tina, we so appreciate um, you know the coverage um, that you've been doing on our airwaves, the writing that you have been doing on this for the Nation magazine. So now, COP twenty seven finished. It's a wrap uh, by Sunday night, November twentieth. A lot of contentious negotiations. The mainstream press uh, very much 
hailing the breakthrough of loss and damage funds. Before we get to anything else, let's just talk about that. Exactly what is the breakthrough? And did it go far enough for the countries who have been pushing for loss and damage funds? Tina Gerhardt. Right. So, so loss and damage is the big headline in terms of the successful outcome from COP27. They talked at the UN climate negotiations about creating a facility or process. Basically, this is what loss and damage means, by which nations in the global north would compensate nations in the global south for the impacts of the climate crisis. Now, this is this is a really big deal because uh, it's an important step for climate justice because it's a significant shift in the mindset. I mean, it clearly announces that the blame for climate crisis rests with the countries that bear this historical responsibility for producing these emissions. They've also, in the meantime, reaped the benefits of for doing so. And then just as critically, it acknowledges that communities in the global south are disproportionately experiencing the effects of these emissions. It's important as well. And I think that's a really big shift, just getting at that issue of historical responsibility. Previously, when I've been on the show and in conversation with you, we've talked about the fact that that cannot be divorced from the history of colonialism, from the theft of land, of labor, in order to create that profit. So those those histories and those issues are really intertwined. And I do think that this is a shift. I think just as importantly, in terms of the UN climate negotiations, is for people to know that this is something that vulnerable countries have been calling for since the very beginning of these UN climate negotiations, so since the Rio Earth Summit in 1992. Yeah, it's hugely historic for that reason. And nations that pushed really hard at this particular COP27, at this particular UN climate conference, um, specifically are uh, Malwin Joseph, he's the Minister of Health, well-being in the environment for Antigua and Barbuda. And he chaired uh, the Alliance of Small Island States this year, AOSIS. The other person who really supported, and I was just looking at documents in preparation for our interview to see which nations were supportive and which ones blocked uh, in terms of going into the UN negotiations, were blocking, saying they were going to block loss and damage. Um, another country that was supportive, but not as supportive as they wound up being was the G, uh, not a country, uh, a UN uh, cluster group was the G77, which actually now includes 134 developing nations. But here's what's important about their support. It was led by Sherry Raymond, who's the Minister of Environment in Pakistan. And I think the recent devastating impacts that they've experienced in their country were responsible in part for why she was so strongly supportive. Pakistan was determined to implement loss and damage. I mean, they have they have these floods that inundated a third of the country. They've impacted 33 million people, half of which are children, and they've unleashed 30 billion US dollars worth of damage killed over 1500. And and that all of what they're experiencing, which might have been in the headlines when it started, but it's still going on, even if it's not in the news, um, is, is to be taken in tandem with the fact that Pakistan is responsible for less than 1% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So they're really at the front lines of experiencing this. Yeah. And you know, uh, Tina, 
the United States, I mean, there was a lot of pressure on the United States. The United States previously had not supported the, the loss and, and damage fund. And some consider uh, one of the major breakthroughs is the United States kind of switching its position. Tell us about that. At what point did that happen uh, in the negotiations? Tina? Right, right. Yeah. So here's here's one interesting detail that in the records that I was just looking at that I mentioned previously of countries who oppose loss and damage going in. The EU, this cluster of European, you know, the European Union, this cluster of European nations, and the US were the only two that opposed loss and damage going in. Now that's hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's just appalling, given what I said previously in terms of the history. Um, you know, the, the U.S. is historically the, the world's largest emitter. Um, the the EU has also emitted um, incredible amounts. So the fact that, and they are wealthy, and those things are related. So the fact that they were opposed is is just appalling. And the EU, at some point, offered loss and damage a loss and damage facility, but they had a ton of strings attached. So along with the EUS, along with the US, they said that funds should come from a range of sources, including both developed and developing nations. And the major sticking point here is China. The UN still classifies China as a developing country, but it is currently the world's largest emitter. It's also the world's second largest economy. So the US consistently nudges towards having China included because it's the second largest economy. It has the financial resources and it's the world's largest emitter presently. But doing that always passes the buck. The U.S. does this with regard to funding and they also do this with regard to reducing emissions, arguing that China should provide the funds or be the first to reduce the emissions detracts from the U.S. as the historic largest emitter and its responsibility to lead the way. There's two other things that the EU also stipulated. They said they attempted to dictate that the funds would only be available to the most vulnerable countries. And here the EU's concern is that countries listed as developing but well-off financially could benefit. There was a couple of different countries that they mentioned uh, China, as I just mentioned, was was one of them. Another country that came up here was Saudi Arabia, and then Qatar also came up. But this is, you know, the other issue here was who's going to define the word vulnerable, and how is vulnerable going to be defined? Because both of those have a lot of power connected to them in terms of who defines and how it's defined. And then lastly, the EU also argued that loss and damage should include insurance which many worried would return the cost of the climate crisis to the frontline nations. And then there's there's another issue. So so this whole fund loss and damage, I mean that the the bad news is loss and damage has not been set up yet. There's absolutely no structure, there's absolutely no money, there's absolutely no details worked out. Well, when is that supposed to happen? I mean it's all well and good to have 
this breakthrough, but the devil is in the details, isn't it, Tina? I mean, have they said, given themselves a deadline or to say who would be working on these details and when they would be in place, Tina? Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the devil is in the details, as they say. (laughs) You're absolutely right. So so these have to be figured out. They did set up a committee that's going to be representing 24 nations. Um, Of course, my immediate question is which 24 nations, but representing 24 nations to meet over the next year to discuss the form of the fund, who's going to contribute, how they're going to contribute, and who's going to receive the funds and how they're going to receive them. So they're going to put forward proposals in advance of the spring 2023 meeting of the World Bank and IMF um, to work out some of uh, these details. One crucial uh, point is whether or not these funds are going to come in the form of grants, which are outright money, or in the form of loans, which your previous speakers outlined in detail as to why uh, it's a problem to have them in the form of loans. But basically, the fund exists, but it's empty. And, you know, in the case of the US funding for it's going to have to be appropriated by Congress, which with the recent results, I mean, we couldn't get anything done previously when, when, you know, when when both both the House um, and the Senate were held, and now you know one has been lost. I mean, there there was uh, Mohammed Adao, who represents PowerShift Africa, put it this way, and I thought this was pretty poignant in terms of this success and and the work that needs to be done. He said, "Quote: What we have is basically an empty bucket. We need to fill it so that support can flow to the most impacted people." End quote. And I think that's right. I mean, this is a success, but but there's. But countries in the global south are so skeptical that this is going to work because over a decade ago in Copenhagen, in 2009, uh, countries in the global north said that they were going to, they promised $2 billion to be delivered by 2020, and most of that money has never arrived. Mm, that's right. <laughs> um, so we'll see how that goes. And, and um, speaking of the IMF, and you heard the guests who were on it, the, the first part of this show, um, and I wondered your reaction to what they're uh, talking about, what they're complaining about, about the IMF ending the interest rate surcharges. Um, you know, it's a step, but it certainly you know, there, there are lots of other steps, which they also acknowledge that uh, need to be taken. Any reaction you have to this surcharge business? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the, the points that, um, that Shireen Talat and Luis Vieira were making were, were spot on in terms of the issues uh, associated with the loans that the IMF approves. Um, I mean, you know, Luis, uh, you know, laid out some of the conditions of these loans. He mentioned that they typically came with conditions and and basically it is to privatize, to deregulate and to liberalize the um, so so to privatize any any goods that are currently held by the state, reduce civil servants. A lot of people are fired typically. Um to deregulate the economy, which if if that shorthand term doesn't doesn't really fill out with anything for your listeners, would mean um, basically uh, you know pushing down any kinds of of labor laws or any kind of environmental codes that have been set up nationally. They get, those get pushed down by these kinds of of loans, and then liberalizing the economy. But those are those are really big um, those are really big issues. Specifically, the issue of interest surcharges, which they've circulated this letter on, 
is important um, because of the kinds of things that both of your previous guests were mentioning. They fit with, um, I'll, I'll, I'll spell that out in a little bit more detail. They fit with what happened at COP27 because Mia Motley, the prime minister of Barbados, has really been at the forefront. She put forward the Bridgetown agenda, which is uh, as as you know, but also to say with your listeners, named after Barbados's capital, and it's basically calling for an overhaul of both the IMF and the World Bank. And there's all of these crises that she mentions in the Bridgetown agenda that we're facing right now. There's the pandemic, there's the rising cost of living, rising cost of energy, and then all of the costs of experiencing the climate crisis. And one of the issues that that she has put forward, or basically three of them, she has asked in the Bridgetown agenda specifically to suspend IMF debt payments for the poorest countries so they don't have to make payments if they're, they're in a financial situation where that's not feasible, so just to suspend them. She's also asked for interest surcharges, which your previous guests were talking about, to be deferred so they don't have to be paid right away. And then to make $100 billion immediately available to nations that need it. Another interesting thing that she is working on that's part of uh, the Bridgetown agenda uh, or or proposal initiative, I've seen it referred to in different ways, uh, is, is, is the fact that she's asking for countries to make sure that when they sign on with the IMF, that they have a clause in there that if they ever get hit by a devastating climate event, such as the, the events that I mentioned previously unfolding in Pakistan or the drought in the Horn of uh, Africa that's that's uh, devastating people there right now with, with I think it's uh, something like 30 billion uh, people facing starvation. If one encounters these kinds of events, one is in a relationship with the IMF it suspends loan payments so that you're not hit with this double whammy of having to pay back these loans and also pay for the impacts of the climate crisis. Yes, and our, our guest here, Tina Gerhardt, environmental journalist, she has been part of our series covering the latest UN conference on the environment known as COP27 that wrapped up uh, the evening of Sunday, November 20th. 2022. She's been covering uh, that conference for the Nation magazine. She also has a book that's coming up, um, will be issued by University of California Press in May of 2023, entitled Sea Change, an Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean. Uh, so we're very much looking forward to that. Uh, Tina, I'm glad you mentioned um, Mia Motley and the, you know, the the document coming out, the Bridgetown agenda, because listening to what you outlined as in the Bridgetown agenda, deferment of interest surcharges are there, right? But it also goes a lot further. Um, as you say, even suspending IMF debt payments for the poorest countries, etc. And also, I imagine uh, all of this discussion is related to whether or not, as you say, they're going to be grants or loans. I mean, if they're loans, we know very well what that means in terms of, of countries that are impoverished to begin with uh, being burdened with even, you know, with even more debt. Um, so do you think, I mean, just in terms of what 
uh, came out of this Bridgetown agenda and what was outlined there, in contrast to some of the other proposals. Your thoughts on it, forward-looking, because Mia, from what I recall, I think it was at this COP, where she kind of said, like, the world today looks like a colonial empire. Right. And she also in a previous cop had talked about uh, greed and selfishness, you know, leading us to uh, common destruction. And it really does seem to me as though if the Bridgetown agenda is calling for a new financial system, that's pretty, I guess, would be considered by many to be pretty radical because it really does challenge the financial system, the main financial systems right now, for example, under capitalism. And can business as usual continue under this system and still be accountable to the climate, right? It's all of us Mm -hmm. uh, creatures who share this planet. Do you know what I mean? It, It, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I do think I I agree with you. The plan that she has put forward is, I mean, use the word revolutionary, and it is, I think, um, radical. Um, It is, I think, radical. It is revolutionary. Um, I mean, basically, we're talking about an overhaul of of the Bretton Woods system, right? The World Bank and the IMF coming out of that. And I think... I think that shouldn't be underestimated. The the her approaches in terms of of looking specifically at the moments that create the pressure points that your previous guests also outlined. So these, you know, whether we're talking about the interest surcharges, um, the 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 fact of loans versus grants that we talked about uh, previously. But also this double whammy of having to make these kinds of payments when one has been hit with a, a climate crisis event. The, those are those are all really big issues. Other things that she has pinpointed is the fact that nations in the global north get better interest rates than nations in the global south. So um, <laughs> your, pre- your previous guests weren't giving the you know the they mentioned this in passing both of them in different ways. But wealthy countries typically get interest rates between 1% to 4%, while developing countries are forced to borrow at a rate of 12 to 14%. What? <laughs> I mean, so this is, you know... That's if we outrageous. Had, it is outrageous. I mean, if we had, you know, a global economic system that helped support those that most needed it from the bottom up, those rates would obviously be flipped around, right? Um, yeah. So this is this is part of why, um, you know, this is part of why the crisis continues to impact countries. And it is, um, Luis didn't say this, but but it it was there in his comments. Basically, the IMF he said is supposed to help these nations, and what it's doing instead, he didn't say this, but I will. It's enchaining them. It's indebting them further. It is not helping them. The you know the interest surcharges are a problem precisely because they keep uh, nations who are supposedly being helped further indebted. Right? The interest, the disproportionate rates at which people can borrow that I just cited are part and parcel of that. And so these are the kinds of things that that Motley is trying to change. My concern. And I have an article coming out in the nation that that talks about this whole issue specifically in more detail. But my concern, which isn't in that article, is that the 
that this overhaul, because the over because this has this overhaul has the support of even like former Vice President Al Gore. He said he addressed COP27. This is in my article. He said, you know, we need to reconvene Bretton Woods, completely revamp and re reform the World Bank system, end quote. And then the G7 is, it's not just the global South, G7 is supporting the Bridgetown agenda. So I sat there and I was like, well, this is interesting. How do these things square up? How do they add up? And yeah. my my real concern is, and, you know, given that Mia Motley has outlined this uh, with her advisors, I'm sure, I'm sure she's on to this, is that the IMF, the World Bank, and all of the people who are saying, yes, support the overhaul, are seeing a new way of indebting nations that most yep. support. Right. And Tina, on that note, sad to say, we're out of time. And I had said this would be kind of like the last in our series. But you know what? We need more because we need more on that last point. And we also need more on the fact that fossil fuels didn't make it into the final draft. So I'm hoping that we could catch up with you again um, if you're not too tired of us, Tina, sometime next week. And it's we always could just... great to, to join you. Thank you. <laughs> right. We'll, we'll, we'll cover those topics, but we are out of time right now. I'd like to thank all of today's guests. Today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas, our board op for today. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at one 800 735 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. For those of you who do celebrate Thanksgiving, we are wishing well, have a, a safe Thanksgiving with friends and family. And we also have to remember indigenous populations, the first nations here um, in the United States. Many uh, people are calling it thanks-taking, given um, the impact of what has happened to indigenous people. So Sojourner Truth will be back on the air on Thursday and Friday with special programming. So stay tuned for more programming coming up on your local Pacifica station. Thank you so very much for listening and you all stay well and safe. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.